Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. Towards the end of chapter 3 of 1 Peter, in verse 18, Peter said, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. That verse, verse 18, is the one we looked at on Easter Sunday, and then last Sunday, we looked at the, the whole last chapter that that begins. We revisited it, and then looked at the rest of the chapter. And this morning, Peter returns to the idea. He's introduced the idea of Christ's suffering, and given us Christ's suffering as a basis for how we behave. There's something about Christ's suffering that's meant to teach us how we should live. And now he's going to return to that theme and expand it for us, give us a a deeper sense of how we're meant to live in light of the suffering of Jesus. As we read our text this morning, which is the first paragraph of chapter 4, the first six verses I want you to hear a couple of things in Peter's words. We're going to be meditating on several of the, you might call them the lessons that we find in this text. First is that the call of the gospel is a call to arms. The call of the gospel is a call to arms, but when you wage war on sin, you wage war on what the world calls good. You wage war on sin, you wage war on what the world calls good. The only way to face final justice is to live for future hope. Let's read the words of Peter. He says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, Peter writes, arm yourselves. Arm yourselves. The gospel is a call to arms. We should arm ourselves with the thinking that was Christ's. The way of thinking that motivated Jesus is the way of thinking we should arm ourselves with. This is a similar idea to what Peter shares in chapter 1, verse 13, when he says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Arm yourselves. Be prepared for action. But what is the way of thinking that we should arm ourselves with? What was the way of thinking that Jesus possessed that becomes, as it were, a defense and a shield for us? 
It's simply this. Jesus was armed with the determination to endure what he must endure now in order to gain that future hope that he lived for. This is the way of thinking. This is the mindset that we ought to arm ourselves with. That understanding of the way that we're meant to live. We endure now looking forward to a future hope, a future reward. And what is the difference between people who arm themselves with this understanding and people who don't? People who see life this way and people who don't? Well, those who don't, those who are unarmed, when they are tested, as they will be, they break. When we don't arm ourselves with the mind of Christ, when we're tested, we, we break. We continue in sin. We're like a city without walls. City without walls. In the politics, Aristotle turns his attention to the question of whether or not when you build your ancient city-state, you should build walls around it. Now, it may seem obvious in the ancient world that you should, because every other city has them. There must be a reason. Aristotle is not one of those guys who just passes over things because they're obvious. He's He's a detailed guy. He likes to to think through everything. And so he actually devotes a chapter on this question of whether or not a city should have walls. Here's what he says. Here's his reasoning. He says, A city defended by walls has a choice of alternatives, to treat its city as walled or to treat it as if it were unwalled. But a people without any walls is a people without any choice. A people without any walls is a people without any choice. A city without walls is indefensible. It is unarmed. The Bible uses exactly this same metaphor in the Proverbs. This is Proverbs 25-28. A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. When we go into life unarmed and we are tested, we break because we're defenseless. Unprepared. Not ready for action in the way Peter says we ought to be. The unarmed break when tested, which means that they continue in their sin. Sin overtakes them and they rest in it. But Peter says that whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Now the preeminent example of this is, of course, Jesus who suffered in the flesh, and in doing so, dealt with sin once and for all. And after death came life. He dealt with sin decisively. And we're meant to follow in his footsteps. Our lives are meant to follow a similar trajectory. If we are in Christ, our lives should follow the same pattern. We live for the will of God, not for human passion. We live for Him, not for ourselves. Those who are armed, those who are armed with this way of thinking, with the mind of Christ, they suffer too. But when they suffer, they do not break. Instead, they fight. They fight. They cease from sin. They go to war with sin. When the armed suffer, when the armed are challenged, when sin attacks them, they defend themselves with the mind of Christ. Their attitude towards sin isn't the same. 
When we think of sin, oftentimes we think, well, to err is human. I'm an imperfect person. It's unavoidable. I'm, I'm going to sin. And, and it's a beautiful thing that there's grace. Because when I sin, when I fall, I can get back up, I can ask for forgiveness, and I can go about my way true enough as far as it goes. But, but sometimes thinking that way makes us comfortable with sin, comfortable with our enemy in a way that we shouldn't be. Those who are armed with the mind of Christ have a different attitude towards sin. Peter says in verse 3, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Now here it's interesting, he's referring to uh, unbelievers as Gentiles, even though, of course, he's writing to Gentiles who've come to faith. But in his mind, he's writing to Gentiles who by faith have become Jews, have shown themselves to be the chosen people of God. What the Gentiles, what the unbelievers want to do, there was time for that in the past. That was enough. The sin that I've done already, that I've indulged in, that was enough. And now I draw a line. Now I move forward. I've lived under sin for as long as I'm going to, and now I'm going to fight. The difficult thing, of course, is that the human passions that we used to live for are attractive. They are beautiful in our eyes. They are wonderful things. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. These are the things we look down our noses on on Sunday mornings. But outside the church, they can appear in really attractive ways. Really attractive ways. If you look at that list that Peter gives, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry, the last item is sort of a summary, and it encompasses everything that went before. Idolatry is the point here. Idolatry is the key to understanding what we're talking about. What's happening here is not this. Peter's not revealing that he's, he's actually a pretty prudish guy. Peter's not revealing that he had a repressed childhood and that human sexuality makes him really uncomfortable. If, if somebody takes a sip of wine, he sees that as drunkenness. right? If, if, if a couple gets married and, and he finds out that they actually had sex, well, that's like an orgy to Peter. He can't bear it. He can't bear the thought. Not at all. That's not what's happening here. All of these things are are activities or practices that he sees as part of the worship of false gods. All of these things are being done under the auspices with the blessing of the false gods of the culture. And to cease from sin is to cease worshiping false gods. If the gospel is a call to arms, the question is, who is the enemy? Who is it that we're meant to wage war against? Some of us are so combative by nature that we would happily wage war with everybody. And others don't want to wage war with anybody. We don't want to be constantly in conflict. So it's worth noting, in light of that, that the Christian war is not against certain things. There are certain things we are not called to be at war with. They may surprise you. Number one, the Christian war is not against the world itself. Now, oftentimes when we talk about the world, 
it might seem like that's exactly what our battle is against. It's against the world. We're against the world. We talk about worldliness as a synonym for you know, evil and sin. So obviously we're at war with the world. And yet, the creation is good. God made the world. God made the beauty within the world and placed us within it, not to destroy it, but to cultivate it. The world is broken as a result of sin. It is in captivity as a result of sin. But we did that to the world. We can't wage a righteous war on the fallen world when we're the ones that inflicted the captivity in the first place. The Christian war is not against the culture. Sometimes we use terminology like that. We're at war with the culture. Right? And we're called to, to be uh, in a kind of culture war, battling it out with the culture around us. And yet, as human beings made in the image of God, our job, our role, our calling in life is to make culture. The first human beings, they were cultivators. Right? They took the raw material of creation and using their God-given creativity, they made stuff from it. Far from being antagonistic towards the project of culture, all of us are called to be involved in it. It's, it's our calling. It's our work. Christian is not at war against the culture. And Christian is also not at war against modernity and progress. The problem, when you look around and, at the world, and you say, well, the problem with the world, the thing that we, we need to roll back, the thing that we need to change is not modernity. It's not progress. It's not that over time things have gotten better. We may occasionally, when we get on our our theological high horses, wish that we had a time machine and could go back in time when the church was perfect. Please don't get in your time machine and push the perfect church button. You'll never arrive anywhere. It never was. I I don't want to go back in the past and live without air conditioning and, and, and all of that good stuff. Air conditioning mainly, but, but, uh, yeah, and the internet. Yeah, I don't want to go back. I know it's not perfect. I know that with progress come a lot of pitfalls, a lot of dangers, but we're not at war with progress. Progress isn't the problem. Modernity isn't the problem. Christians want things to improve. We want things more and more to be made into the shape of, of the, what they were meant to be. We're people of hope. Not people of despair. How could we be at war with the future? So what are we at war with? What are we at war with? We're at war with sin. With sin. Sin is the enemy. Sin is the thing that insinuates itself into every good thing. That strangles the good. That chokes it. That corrupts. It is sin that shackles you and calls your captivity your freedom. Sin is the enemy. And the question is, are you going to arm yourself against it or not? Are you going to fight back or not? I think if if we have a problem as modern Christians, a lot of it has to do with not knowing who the real enemy is. And so when we fight, oftentimes we don't fight the right battle. We don't fight. Our guard is down. We succumb to sin. We fight other battles. Sometimes we do it even knowing that sin is the real struggle. 
But we tell ourselves we have time and strength for more than one fight. I'm going to work on my sin. I'm going to fight my sin, but there are a lot of other things I need to fight too. Maybe first. And then once my other enemies are vanquished, I can focus on sin. And when we tell ourselves that, the reality is we reveal that we have no idea how powerful our real enemy is. If you think you have time and effort left over from the struggle against sin to fight some other kind of battle, to wage some other kind of war, you don't realize how strong the grip of sin truly is. The war against sin is the one you must fight. Every other conflict is a distraction. You can't fight on multiple fronts. You can't fight sin from time to time. Sin isn't like weeds that you pull up and they come back next year. Sin is is more tenacious than that. It's a constant. In the war against sin, there's one weapon to cling to. There is one weapon that we've been given in the war against sin that trumps all others. It is the Word of God. In uh, a Reformation Rumble Wednesday, I'll talk a little bit about the exchange of letters between Calvin and Bishop Sadaletto, what that was all about. But, but in Calvin's letter to Sadaletto, he writes about this idea of the war against sin and our only weapon in that war. He says, if a man is to belong to the flock of God, he must be prepared for that warfare which he has ordained for all the godly. An armed enemy is at hand, on the alert to engage, an enemy most skillful and unassailable by mortal strength, to resist him. With what guards must not that poor man be defended? With what weapons armed if he is not to be instantly annihilated? Paul informs us that the only sword with which he can fight is the word of the Lord. A soul, therefore, when deprived of the word of God, and given up unarmed to the devil for destruction. Now then, will not the first machination of the enemy be to wrest the sword from the soldier of Christ? And what the method of wresting it, but to set him a doubting whether it be the word of the Lord that he is leaning upon, or the word of man? What will you do for this unhappy being? Will you bid him look round for learned men on whom reclining he may take his rest? But the enemy will not leave him so much as breathing time in this subterfuge. For when once he has driven him to lean upon men, he will keep urging and repeating his blows until he throws him over the precipice. Thus, he must either be easily overthrown or he must forsake man and look directly to God. So true it is that Christian faith must not be founded on human testimony not propped up by doubtful opinion, not reclined on human authority, but engraven on our hearts by the finger of the living God, so as not to be obliterated by any coloring of error. The only sword we have in the fight is the Word of God, and it's that very thing that the enemy would take from you. And anywhere else you turn to for help, you will be overthrown. It is to the Word of God we must cling But recognize this, that when you take up arms against sin, when you draw the Word of God in that battle that we're called to, when you wage war on sin, you wage war on what the world calls good. 
which means that your fight will be misunderstood. And Peter captures this reaction when he says, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. Now, the way that we've traditionally understood this in uh, Christian culture isn't quite right. I think typically we would give you sort of this uh, list of bad things that you shouldn't do, and we should say that when you don't do them, the world is surprised and they will malign you. Along these lines, they'll say, hey, you used to be a bad person like us, You used to love debauchery, but now you've become some sort of righteous, good person, some goody two-shoes, and that's the maligning. They're accusing you of being righteous and and good. That's not actually maligning, right? That's just accurate. right? You've you've turned your back on sin, and and you've resolved to fight against it, and and if people come up and say, oh, you sure are against sin, well, yeah, you are. That's, That's not maligning you. That's not what's going on here. Remember, all of these practices that Peter is pointing to like people in the Greco-Roman world weren't going around saying, well, now that looks like immorality. This is part of their civic worship. This is part of their culture. These were things that, that Peter may describe negatively, but they saw as the kind of things righteous people do. Like good citizens do this stuff. This is, this is accepted. Right? This is culturally approved. The maligning isn't that when you stop doing these things, people will think you're good. It's that when you distance yourself from these virtues in the eyes of the world, people will think you're bad. You're not righteous. You don't participate in in the civic life around you. You don't agree with the culture that you're in. You're at odds with things that we're okay with. You used to be bad like us, and now you're good. No. You used to be good like us, and now you're not. People are surprised you do not join them in what they believe to be good. What the larger culture insists is good. They malign you by concluding that you're doing evil. Which is a hard thing to do. When everyone around you thinks that what you're doing is wrong, it's hard to persist. So arming yourself against sin means more than just cleaning up your act. A lot of times that's the way we think, a sort of moralistic way. I used to be a bad person. I used to do all these things that are vices. But now I'm going to clean up my act. I'm going to live a better life. And that's what arming myself against sin is all about. In part, but in truth, what it's really about is something deeper than that. When you wage war on sin, you align yourself against what sinners deem to be good. You embrace an antithetical view of right and wrong. A different way of thinking, in other words. It's not just your action, it's the way you see everything, the way you judge everything. And this is more than just shaping up. It's more than just like cutting back on your iniquity, dialing it down a little bit for the sake of Jesus. When you consider the example of Jesus... You see in Hebrews 4 that Jesus was without sin. Jesus never sinned. He never did anything that you could judge as wrong, as unholy. Jesus never set a bad example. And yet, the good people of his society did not consider Jesus to be a moral person. They were critical of his moral stances, in fact. The Pharisees and the scribes, the moral leaders of their day, said in Luke 15, this man receives sinners and eats with them. He's not as good as we are. 
He doesn't live to as high a standard as we do. If Jesus, who was without sin, was not considered by the world to be good, then you, who aren't quite without sin, shouldn't expect to be thought of any differently. I'm not saying the point that, that you know religion is bad, that these religious leaders, their moralism was terrible. The point is that when you're at war with sin, you're at war with what the world loves. You can't expect to be understood. And being at odds with the world around you is hard to sustain. There's a reason why, over time, immigrants assimilate. Adopt the ways of the culture that they find themselves in. There's a reason why subcultures over time are so hard to maintain. Why languages are no longer spoken the way they were from generation to generation. And it's the pressure. The pressure to be like everyone around you. It's a natural phenomena. When people come together, we're social by nature and we like to be like the people around us. Standing out is hard. It takes a toll. So what sustains you? What sustains you? If your only weapon in the war against sin is the Word of God, what sustains you in that war and having to stand out when it's so hard to do? Peter says that one thing that sustains you is knowing that justice will come. That justice will come. It matters whether we continue in slavery to sin or wage war against it. There are consequences to that. Peter thinks the only way to face final justice is to live for a future hope. He says in verse 5, they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. They will give account. They will give account for the way they've lived. And so will you. Grass way of putting this, party now, pay later, or pay now and party later. The principle is expressed in a parable, a story that we looked at last time in Luke 16, the rich man and Lazarus. Remember, when the rich man and Lazarus go to their graves and, and the rich man has this dialogue with Abraham, Abraham actually gives him this principle. Abraham says, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. Either you feast now and suffer at the end or you suffer now and feast at the end. Now if there is no justice to come, it doesn't matter how you live. None of this matters. If there is no justice to come, Live however you want. There really is no point in not participating in all of the things that, that Peter says we shouldn't. Because if there is no justice to come, if, if there is no judge of the living and the dead, if, if no one will answer for what they've done, it doesn't matter. But if there is, it's different. Maybe John Lennon is right. Maybe there really is nothing to kill or die for. None of it matters. It's, it's an illusion. It's just a bad idea that we've imposed on ourselves. But if it's not, if the longing for justice that beats inside our hearts every time we see injustice 
perpetrated. If, if the sense that we have that the world is not just broken but should be set right, if all of that points to something real and something true, then it matters. It matters. Whether we fought against sin or we're complacent in our slavery to sin. If there will be justice, then we need a future hope. Because without it, who can stand? We need the mind of Christ now so that we can sit at the table of Christ. That he's prepared for us at the end of the world. Now the call of faith has always pointed to future hope. This has always been the gospel. A lot of times, it's true that we've told ourselves that that if we accept Jesus, then we don't have to suffer, right? If we're in Christ, then God will will uh, ride shotgun with us, and nothing bad will ever happen to us. But that's never been the message of the gospel. It wasn't in the New Testament, and it wasn't in the Old Testament either. If you consider the lives of the Old Testament saints, they lived for a future hope. It's easy for us to see now in hindsight. right? They, they didn't have the full gospel as we do. They didn't even know the name of their hope, Jesus. But they lived for that future hope, and they died in it. And that's the life we're called to as well. That's the life we're called to as well. Peter says, For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. He's referred earlier in the book to these Old Testament saints. Remember the holy women of old that we should take as role models. And here he turns our attention again. He says, God is the judge of the living and the dead. Let's talk about the dead for a moment and see that the gospel that was preached to those who are now dead is the same here. They had to suffer now so that they could live for the future hope in Christ to come. They were judged in the flesh, he says. They were judged in the flesh. That's why they died. That's what death is. It's judgment. Romans 6 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So when we die, it's not just because the world is broken by sin. Death is a judgment upon that sin. It's a penalty or a consequence for sin. And sin is tenacious, desires to rule over you. As God says to Cain, sin is crouching at the door, its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. From the very beginning, from the very beginning, sin has wanted to speak the final word on you. Sin has wanted to rule over you. And the final word sin wanted to speak was death. The saints of old, they believed. They had faith in that future hope and they died. They died. If you think the Gospel is about protecting you against this kind of death, against physical suffering, you've got it wrong. You can look to their example and the example of every Christian who's gone before and see that that's not what the Gospel is promising. It's promising something more. Because of faith, those saints who are judged in the flesh now live in the Spirit the way God does. That is the free gift. That is the free gift that Paul writes about. The saints of God have always been at war with sin 
Jesus is our king. He leads us in battle. He is the commander of the hosts of the army of the Lord God. We must answer him when he calls us. The same way the people of Israel answered his namesake Joshua. In the Old Testament, when Joshua took over command from Moses, when Moses handed off that responsibility to this younger man, this man of action, the people were presented with Joshua, which is literally the, the, the name Jesus. Jesus is Joshua in Greek. And here's how the people answered Joshua. They said, all that you have commanded us, we will do. And wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your commandment and disobeys your words, whatever you command him shall be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. Only be strong and courageous. And their words to Joshua speak to us. Be strong and courageous. In the war against sin, fight. Cling hard to the sword of the Word of God. Cling hard and fight. Fight with your eyes fixed on a future hope because whether you realize it or not, you are at war. Paul says that he delighted in the law in his inner being, but he saw in his members another law waging war against the law of his mind, making him captive to the law of sin. That's the battle. That's the battle. Sin waging war against you must be fought. And in that battle, Christ is our deliverer. Christ is our deliverer. This isn't a battle we have to win. It's a battle that has been won. All that we do in our struggling is anticipate and secure that final victory that final declaration of triumph over death and sin. When you answer the call of Jesus' Gospel, that good news, you answer a call to arms. You wage war on sin as Jesus did, even when it means waging war on everything the world calls good. But this is a gentle and peaceful warfare. We won't kill anyone in this war. We won't wound anyone, injure anyone, we will save. We will repair. We will rebuild. In this gentle, peaceful warfare, we're sustained by the knowledge that there will be justice. And that on that day of justice, we can stand with Jesus Christ, who is our future hope. If you believe this, if you are Christ's, then arm yourselves Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.